0: And the failed experiments are as important as those that succeed because, as a good scientist will tell you, you learn more from a failed experiment than you do from a successful experiment. You learn what variables can be laid aside. You learn what's not true for you. You learn that the ground you thought you were standing with was quicksand and it it gives way very, very easily
1: hi welcome to the big self podcast i'm your host chad prevost
2: and i'm your host Shelly prevost today
1: we share a wide-ranging conversation with parker palmer from acts of rebellion to the hidden wholeness of the world to the integration of the inner and outer life as well as teaching and leadership this conversation is rich in wisdom and hope. And for all his successes in the world, Palmer can identify with those who have undergone or are going through depression. He went through a long period of it in his 40s and even long after he had come out of it, he wasn't able to say for sure why he was able to climb out of it while many others are not. Depression is the ultimate state of disconnection, he writes. While Palmer doesn't wish the experience on anyone, he does believe that it marked a pivotal passage on his pilgrimage towards selfhood, and vocation. We have followed Parker Palmer's work for literally decades and are both thrilled and honored to have him on our podcast. This opportunity to get a chance to meet him and reflect with him on the condition of the world right now was a real gift. If you want to learn more about some of his signature books or discover his nonprofit organization at the Center for Courage and Renewal, just check it out in our show notes. Be sure to listen to the end for the Big Self Takeaway.
0: Thank you, okay. Chad and Shelly. Uh, it's good to be with you.
2: It is uh, beyond thrilling for us to have you here. So I, uh, we just had your friend on, Jerry Colonna. Mm-hmm. Colonna? I think that's how you say it. Yeah, yes, uh, he said Colonna. Uh, yes. Not too long ago, and actually I just got an email from him. And he said that he uh, he esteems your laughter and your <laughs> sense of humor as one of your highest qualities. Oh, so he said we would have a really fun time with you, Oh, that's which lo- I knew we would. That's
0: lovely. Uh, Jerry and I do laugh a lot. This is true. So he's, yes, uh, he's a wonderful, yes. wonderful guy. I've learned so much from him. I'm glad you had him on your program.
2: You don't know this. I've told Jerry this too, but um, probably when Chad and I have followed your work, I think for decades now and just a few years ago, he's getting your books out as we yes, speak.
1: I, I want to, I know that our audience can't hear this cause this will be audio <laughs> only, but I am pulling up here are a few of your books. Just right here. So we've got just for, uh, osmosis. But, um, yeah, go ahead. So John.
2: I, a few years ago went through a very dark period of, uh, very, what you know well, and you write about well, uh, burnout, some depression, a lot of anxiety, and oh, I always cry when I talk about this.
0: It's all
1: right. You you kind of anticipated that you would. Your tears are welcome here.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: It was a really dark time, and you and Jerry sojourned with me through that. Well, you. You didn't you. even know it.
0: Well, thank you.
2: It was his podcast and his mentoring, your books and your mentoring really sustained me in a very significant way. Well,
0: thank you, Shelley. That really means a lot to me. As you know, and I'm I'm sure you do this all the time in your own life and with the people you work with, the, the best thing to do with a hard experience in life is to try to make meaning of it. And the best way to make meaning of it, I think, is to offer it up to other people, in service to other people. And so, while it's been very therapeutic for me to go public with my several experiences of profound depression, it's it's wonderfully therapeutic to know that other people benefit from that. And so I'm very grateful for for the fact that one of those people yeah. was you. Thank you.
2: Yeah. And it was on the heels of my startup imploding so had which is just it was a very traumatic failure for me at the time and I couldn't figure out how to restructure an identity in that um, post implosion and certainly that's Jerry's world Um, you had so much to offer around burnout Mm -hmm. and around vocation Um, and so it just really meant a lot to me so to have you here today is just uh, it's a real gift. I just wanted to say that. Thank
0: you. I much appreciate it. Thank you.
2: So I want to start with this. Um, I know we've already introduced you to our audience, but I would love for you just to share a little bit about your very winding path, um, the work that you've done. Uh, There's a through line through it. I think that Uh, you know, as I think about what you've done in your work and the books you've written, there does seem to be a through line Mm -hmm. and how it all culminates in this understanding. And this is from let your life speak before I can tell my life what I want to do with it. I must listen to my life telling me who I am. So talk just briefly about how that experience has been for you and what, what your life has said.
0: Right. Well, at age 82, it's hard to be brief about anything, you know, (laughs) Shelley. Fair, very fair. Plus which old men are garrulous. So um, I'll be as brief as I possibly can. Um, So I set out on what I thought was going to be an academic career. I was the first person in my family to go to college. I got a PhD at Berkeley in sociology, but the cities were burning. America was in the midst of yet another reckoning with race and with the original sin of American culture. Um, And it seemed to me when I got my PhD in 1969 that I was profoundly called to get engaged with urban issues, especially around race. race. So I went to Washington, D.C. and became a community organizer working on issues of redlining and blockbusting, which is a piece of the complex justice problem, as you know. Um, And after five years of that, I decided to take a year off, a sabbatical. I I was burned out. I I needed a sabbatical and uh, went to a Quaker living learning community called Pendle Hill near Philadelphia, where there were 80 people who were living in intentional community Um, living very low on the hog, as we say, uh, because the purpose wasn't to make money. The purpose was to serve the world. And I ended up staying there 11 years and learning a lot from the Quaker tradition about nonviolent social change. And the Quakers, I think, really major major in two things, which we could talk about at length, but I won't. One is the inner journey towards getting grounded in what's real and true and life-giving for you getting away from the ego into what Buddhists call the big self. Um, I'm sure that was one of the roots of the name of your program. Yes, it was. Yes, uh, bing, bing. And, um, you know, finding out what, what is actually the ground on which you stand. And the, But the other piece of Quakerism that I so value is fi- standing there and manifesting it in word and action in the larger world. So Quakers, though small in number, have been disproportionately engaged in nonviolent social change around war and peace, around women's issues, around racial justice, etc. And so I, for me, one of the red threads that run, runs through my writings through 10 books and lots and lots of articles uh, is this dance between the inner and outer that I think we're doing Day in and day out. And it's the finding of that solid ground on which to stand as a human being, with which you are then able to reach out to the world in a trustworthy and I think also a sustainable way. So that's at least a piece of the journey for me. I, after 10 years at Pendle Hill, I basically launched my own, I guess, one, one person startup. As an independent writer, uh, traveling teacher, and activist engaged in different social movements, um, I'll just say this about what about the litmus test that kind of guided me through all of that. I was I was surrounded by friends, to some extent, family, um, and professional colleagues who simply did not understand what I was doing. Why would you? do all the work involved in getting a PhD from Berkeley and then launch into this, as you said, circuitous route or wandering path. And I I could never adequately explain to anybody back in the day uh, why I was doing what I was doing. I could barely explain it to myself. But the, the words I used at the time that are still true for me today, when someone questioned me, I would say, well... I can't not do this. I, mm. I, I cannot give you a compelling rationale for how this is going to make me rich and famous because that's not, I'm not interested in that A, and clearly this, this won't. Um, <laughs> but, but I can't not do it because at some level, and I think it was only in later years that I could add this phrase, at some level, I knew that if I walked away from what I felt as my life calling to me and the, the imperatives of my soul, if I walked away from that, I would pay a huge price in terms of my soul, in terms of my identity and integrity. If, if the word soul doesn't work for someone, we're talking. this is what secular humanists call identity and integrity. And I don't think we have anything more precious than that, uh, to be who we are in the most fully manifested form we can uh, manage to reach in this lifetime. Always imperfect, always falling short, big deal. It's the effort that counts, right? It's the reaching that counts.
1: Mm, yeah. yeah.
2: I, I'm i curious um, how, like... The unfolding of calling. So what, let's talk about that for a minute, because that's been such a foundation to your work. And I think so important to us is that the the concepts, the, the ideas you have around vocational calling. So this listening to your life, letting your life tell you um, is not without its struggles. No. Um, so I'm really curious. I think that there's a sense that people tend to have that if I'm, if I'm called to this, it should be easy. Mm -hmm. Or if I'm listening to me, to inside me, my soul, it's what I call it. Then that should, it should flow. It should be easy. But my experience is that it's not at all. Um, has that been true for you? Can I,
1: let me actually, I'm glad that you're bringing up this calling thing, Shelly, because I've actually, okay. This is a great moment to ask this because all of my life I have, I earnestly pursued my calling, but without always really understanding who I was. And so I could be earnestly thinking that I was doing something within my calling, but the struggle was I was trapped in personality Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so you could, as, as I, I, you know, the quote of the Thomas Mert, we could find ourselves with the ladder leaning on the wrong wall. We can earnestly feel like we're in our calling, but without knowing ourselves still not be in it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And again, I'll, I'll refer to the name of your program or the big self emphasis that you make. That's, that's the self that isn't guided by ego and and mm-hmm. what it wants to pretend to be in the world or how it, how it thinks how other people think it ought to show up in the world but it's it's a self that's that's guided by the, as i say the imperatives of, of the soul and i think struggle shelley is part of the deal um i i was helped early on and this is where i become grateful for my education in nonviolence, which I was getting through the Quakers at Pendle Hill during my 11 years there as as dean of studies, um, which is what I became after a year of sabbatical. I joined the staff. Um, One of the things, important things I learned at that time was the life and thought of Gandhi. And, and Gandhi titled his autobiography, My Experiments with Truth. So if you, if you come into this with fanaticism, with, by God, I got to do this because mom wants me to do it, dad wants me to do it, I, it looks good to do it, that's, that's the ego stuff that, that rides right over the fact that a human life is a whole series of experiments with truth as, as Gandhi had it. And I think he got it absolutely right. And if you're experimenting, you you assume, as any good scientist would, that some of those experiments are going to succeed and some are going to fail. And the failed experiments are as important as those that succeed, because as a good scientist will tell you, you learn more from a failed experiment than you do from a successful experiment. You learn what variables can be laid aside. You learn what's not true for you. You learn that the ground you thought you were standing with was quicksand, and it, and it mm-hmm. gives way very, very easily. So I think you, you have to go into life with that sense of experimentation, but you're, you're always looking for, not for external dictates, and there are forms of religion that pose one's calling, one's vocation, as an external dictate. But one of the blessings of Quakerism for me is that they believe in the inner teacher, the inner light, as the old-time Quakers used to say back in the 17th century, the indwelling Christ. That language doesn't exist much anymore, but it's it's all about the fact that if if you if you don't feel it truthfully on the inside, it, it, it's, that experiment is gonna fail. Um, yeah. and, and there are all kinds, that, that takes us to the next step, which is to become deeply discerning about how, what you're really feeling. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, a, and a lot of us are programmed away right. from feeling what we're feeling. Um, and and from being honest with ourselves and other people about how this is working out in our in our lives, um, you know, it's this this business of suffering around vocation is interesting because um, again, the, an act of discernment is required to figure out is this creative suffering or is this pathological suffering? You know, mm-hmm. is, is, okay. is this that's good in in Christian terms. Is is this a true cross or a false cross? Because, mm. unfortunately, and I speak here as someone who was formed in the Christian tradition, and Quakers are a form of Christianity. Um, in 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 Christian terms, there there's in Christian history, there's a lot of false crosses placed on people. You ought to do this. You ought to do that. But that's an ex. I call that an ethical exoskeleton. And it it props you up for a while, you know, maybe before you have your own backbone or your own sense of identity. Um, But what we all need is an an endoskeleton that grows from within our own being and within our, our own nature. And you don't have to, you know, you don't have to revert to any of the great world religions to ground this stuff it's it's a it's it's part and parcel of secular humanism with all of its kind of socratic principles about the unexamined life is not worth living that's another phrase that has meant a lot to me and so this examination of how do i really feel what what am i really doing why am i really doing it which requires both a solitary journey and a journey in a trustworthy community of people who can hold you in a particular way. And I've written a lot about this piece Mm. of the puzzle too, uh, in in discernment, because the truth about ourselves, the truth about our callings is not the only inner voice we have. We have voices of greed, of of power-hungriness, of jealousy, Mm -hmm. of competition, of ego, that can sometimes get confused with uh, the voice of truth just because, you know, we think it's cool to think that way. Uh, And and at that point, you need other people to help you sort and sift which voice you're listening to.
2: Uh, Well, let me, can I, I'm going to say one thing, Parker, to you. One of the things you taught me was... uh, it's, it's not even important. It's critical to have solitude and silence it's in practices in my life. Like I thought I was uh, doing the inner work and kind of um, tending to the listening aspect of my life and my soul, but I realized that what I was doing was journaling or reading, and, and it was still out, input from something outside of myself that I was um, trying to contour and fit myself into. And so this idea of silence and solitude that took the form of some sometimes it's just sitting. Mm-hmm. It's not always meditation. I don't think I'm that great at it. Yeah. But it does like give me access to something that is it's ineffable. Like I can't even describe what it is. But with without it, I know that I'm not whole. Yeah. I'm not fully
0: No, yeah. yeah, I'm I'm the same way, Shelly. For me, walking in the woods is is a a wonderful contemplative exercise, partly because any experience of big nature kind of helps you get your own life in perspective. Um, Mm -hmm. I especially love when I'm able to do it to go into really big nature, like the high desert outside of Santa Fe, you know, where you're walking past cliffs with layers of rock that go back gazillions of years. And you suddenly realize, oh, these rocks have seen it all. Why would they care about (laughs) about, about my little troubles? And it it comes to me in those places that, and this actually happened to me one time in the high desert, I had this powerful moment of perception when I realized that the the cosmos is utterly indifferent to me. I mean, I'm just a speck, half a speck in, in the cosmos. But it's, it's also profoundly accepting and even in some strange way forgiving of me because the act of getting your life in perspective is an act of self-forgiveness. And you know a, what, what a lot of people who get trapped, especially in this the particular forms of religion that we're talking about or, or of um, egotism that we're talking about, um, they're 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 burdened with with guilt that keeps them on the wrong path um and and as a consequence um they can never figure out what is life-giving and what isn't because they they're unable to forgive themselves they feel like self-flagellation is the way forward just to put it bluntly and it never yeah. is it never ever is uh, you know, the, the, the simple truth of human life is if you can't accept and love yourself on the other side of everything we screw up on, how how in the world can you accept and love another person? Really, it just mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. At this level of life, at, at, around these inner life issues, which we're talking about, there's, until you have owned it, and done it for yourself, you can't offer it as something another person should or could do. You just can't. I mean, I can. I have technical knowledge that I can offer people. Oh, you want to know how that piece of, of system analysis works? Here's the deal. But I can't talk to people about forgiveness, self-forgiveness, unless I've forgiven myself. I just, I don't, I have, I'm blowing smoke, right? I have no idea what I'm talking about.
2: And I definitely don't know that we can walk with people in it, um, or at least not as effectively. I think you're right. It's maybe intellectual, and it's informational, but not in the bones. One of
0: the great concepts that I learned along the way, and lots of us have, is the concept of the wounded healer, which actually loops right back to what we were saying about offering the experience of depression up for other people once you've integrated it into yourself. Um, I think when when a person says, yeah, I've been there and and it's hell and I can't to this day tell you what enabled me to survive or let alone thrive on the other side, but I can accompany you with deep compassion, empathy, walk by your side which is the best thing in the world for a person who's in a state of depression, where the where the most terrifying feeling is I there's I'm not connected with any other human being on the on the face of the earth, it, it,
2: or myself, or
0: myself. Yeah, mm-hmm. it'll take some time for folks to get to the fact that this is about being disconnected from themselves, right? That's, yes, but so true. The first symptom is I I can't relate to anybody in a healthy, creative way.
1: And these things go, go way back. Although for our culture, it's uh, subversive perhaps. And I remember, you know, pretty recently in a conversation that you had with Krista Tippett and Courtney Martin at the pop tech festival a few years ago, you agreed with Courtney that it is an act of rebellion to show up as someone trying to be whole. And then you added Especially as someone who believes there is a hidden wholeness beneath the very evident brokenness of our world, so could you share with us what that hidden wholeness is, and perhaps also how we could aim to find it?
0: Yeah, I I remember that event very well, and uh, Krista and Courtney are still active parts of my life for which I'm very grateful. Two wonderful people to know about. Yeah, so this is what interests me. We 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 talk a lot about striving for unity right we we hear that today politically culturally we have this highly fragmented society um, around disparate tribes that apparently want nothing to do with one another and so let us strive for unity well i think the first thing we have to see is that no matter what angle you take on it we are already one we are already mm. unified you you if you, you could look at us theologically, the claim is made where we are already one. Um, it, it gets made in different language. We're all God's children. You know, there, there's no race or economic status or any of those demographic markers involved. We are all one, but you can also look at it from any secular discipline you, you choose from biology, from economics, from political science. From public health and medicine, do we not have here two years into the pandemic ample evidence that an invisible virus that springs up in a a place halfway around the globe is capable of spreading in a way because of our interconnectedness, precisely Mm. because of our interconnectedness, in a way that Mm, takes down the whole planet? I, if if we can't read that data point for what it says then then you know i guess someone could say well you know abandon hope all ye who enter here and there are days when it kind of feels like that but we've always known in in economics an economic perturbation in one part of the global economy will somehow land here in detroit uh, or some port city, um, and on and on it goes. And and biologically- if, And
1: that's happening too. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: happening too. And biologically to, to address our um, great crisis around race, not only in this country, but elsewhere in the world, nature offers no such thing as race. R- race is not a fact in nature. Race is an undifferentiated continuum of genetic frequencies. That's a correct technical definition into which we break with markers that say cross here and you're such and such a race. Go the other way and you're a different race. These are fictions. These are fabrications. These are what scholars call social constructs. We are one when it comes to race. The human genome is hugely, hugely overlapped, not only among human beings, but also other creatures. So, to me, when people say to me, well, you know, um, where is this thing um, called uh, a hidden wholeness, that is a phrase I got from Thomas Merton, um, you can say, well, you know, it's a mystical vision or it's an article of faith that's perceived. In a mystical way, or you can say, "Well, it's science." Uh, mm. Everywhere you look, it's <laughs> science. It's just, it's just true. And, and as always in human life, we, we don't like embracing the truth. <laughs> and and uh, you know, it, uh, to go back to that quote that I guess I uh, we, that we were playing with at, at Pop Tech with Krista Tippett and, and Courtney Martin. Um, mm we 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 just don't like calling it calling it what it, what it is because it's challenging to live especially in this country with its mythos of individualism competitive individualism it's challenging to live into the reality that what i do ha- impacts on other people and what other people do impacts on me and we better wake up and smell the coffee and keep working on on that one um before we don't have a world to work on anymore. But what's interesting at that point, and I'll just go the full Monty here, is that every biologist will tell you that if we blow it, literally, as a species on this earth, it won't be very long before the weeds and the insects and the plants and the trees have reclaimed the ecosystem, cleaned it up, and moved on to whatever thing whatever they're going to create next and i find that reassuring you know talk about perspective
2: yeah there's something very humbling one of my the pieces of work i've been doing a lot of conscious work around is humility and so, thank you for that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. That is something that I will stick back there and remember that this is, uh, this is potentially where we could head.
1: Yeah. So, if you came here tuning in to get a few points on how to beat burnout, congratulations, you that's may right. be a dinosaur.
2: Yeah. No, that's that's so true, though. Uh, so, speaking of burnout, yeah, can we talk about that? Because we do a lot of burnout in our work. A lot of consulting around that, a lot of coaching, a lot of talking and training around that. Um, And I've always, always loved your, I don't know if it was a quote or just a concept, but this idea that burnout is not about giving too much. It's about giving what I don't possess. And oh my gosh, that's so true. Yeah, she's Um, used that for years. I have. I I quote you liberally, partner, (laughs) Um, and I always give you credit, but talk could you talk about that like how
1: well wait can i add something too sure. because like he also recently i've heard i've heard you parker define burnout as violating my own nature in the name of nobility right and i i think that's a really interesting different kind of quote i, I was so could you expand on what you mean by that? And-
2: well, I think in general, t- tell us kind of your burnout experience and, then, and how you've reframed it a little bit to what you now know Yeah.
0: Yeah, in fact, I think I'm right. I mean, we can, we can find out when we listen to the, the uh, tape on this, as it were. I think when I was talking about my five years as a community organizer in Washington, D.C., I said I burned out and needed to go to Pendle Hill. Uh, This this, what I thought was a sabbatical ended up being over a decade of life experience. And and I can link what I want to say directly to that. Um, uh, Let me start there because it will make it more concrete for people. By 1969, when I went to D.C., I was filled with a sense of nobility that I needed to do something about the racial crisis in this country, right? I was 29 years old. I had had a great awakening after growing up in an all-white, affluent suburb of Chicago. I'd had a great awakening through a year in New York and then several years in Berkeley in the 60s to all the hard issues in this society about race and class and gender and sexual orientation and so forth. And so I was filled with this sense of, I got to get up on a white horse and ride to the rescue of those folks in Washington, D.C., whose lives are being crimped and cramped and sometimes lost to systemic racism. And with another fellow, I founded a community organizing institute. We raised our own money a quarter at a time every three months, um, kept ourselves afloat for five years and more, did some good things there, established a community foundation. But anybody who has ever worked in community organizing or gotten close to real politics that way knows that not every uh, kind of human being is made up to do that sort that particular kind of heavy lifting i was a pretty thin-skinned young man and that's that doesn't work very well when you're a community organizer i hadn't learned much at age 29 about the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, how to endure them, how to survive beyond them, how not to be brought low by them. And so my, my burnout, I eventually learned, it took me time because, you know, when we fall short of, what we, of this ethic that tells us what we ought to be doing, and that's something I want to return to in a minute. When we fall short of that ought ethic, that ethic of ought, we are, we are gravely disappointed in ourselves, and we've been tossed off that white horse, and we want to get back on because ego depends on it. Well, one of the things I learned at Pendle Hill was it was, it was valuable for me to have the experience as a community organizer because I needed to learn how the world is and how it operates at that level because politics has always been a thread running through my work. But I was not cut out long term for active engagement in that work. I I was more cut out to connect the dots between inner life issues, outer life social change issues, and to engage in various forms of teaching, including writing and Leading workshops and eventually establishing a nonprofit organization called the Center for Courage and Renewal, which has been up and running for 25 years, helping people with these things. Um, that, that was that was my truer calling, but it took me a couple decades to pull those pieces together and figure out how it all how it all worked for me. So, it, I, I don't. I never say to people well, if you believe such and such, then this you ought to do this about it, which is the, the, the ought that did me in as I took that first step post-PhD in in my career. I tried to learn from that. It was an experiment that failed, right? To go back to Gandhi's phrase, that was an experiment with truth. And it didn't for me it didn't work it it's worked for other people it worked pretty well for Barack Obama uh but he's a different person than i am for sure and um this was not part of my own identity and integrity it was it had a piece that i aspired to and needed to learn about so i don't regret those 5 years it's not like wasted time at all it was actually critical to my formation in terms of what i'm doing Right now, um, but the burnout wasn't just you know my my noble desire to give everything I had. The burnout was trying to give something I didn't have. I hope that makes that makes sense. And the the you know that part of the mechanism, as doctors will say, what's the mechanism of this illness? Part of the mechanism was I was operating on received aughts rather than anything about my own identity and integrity my own truth the imperatives of my own soul I mean I'd just come from six or seven years in Berkeley which was a very high minded time in the in the in the part of that culture that I participated in which wasn't the hippie part or the drug addled part but it was the social aspiration part that filled me with hope and energy and gave me a vision of something better than I had than I had been able to see in the affluent white, all white suburb that I grew up in. And so I understand. And sometimes I've, it yeah. Go well, ahead. I'm
1: sorry, I was just going to add that I think sometimes to 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 get closer to our you know our truth is to have some of these failed experiments. It's helping me. What you're saying, think about a couple of mine, and I know I did have takeaways, and I learned from. I I shouldn't just regret and wish I didn't do something. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I feel that. I feel that very deeply. And you know, Chad, I think that most older adults, if they're honest about their lives, will say, "I've learned more from my failures than I have from my successes." I mean, the, the,
1: it's hard for people to accept that though because a failure feel it's a failure it hurts.
0: Absolutely. It's it our ego. It, it, well, that's the <laughs> yeah. thing, isn't it? Right there. But we have to detach yeah. that from a kind of self-judgment. This is where forgiveness comes in. But just think about it empirically. If I succeed at something um I'm just a happy camper. I think, "Whoa, I'm God's <laughs> gift to the world," you know. I, I I knocked it out of the park that time. If I fail at something, I'm up at three in the morning, thinking it over, <laughs> trying to figure out what went wrong. That's part of the learning process. Patting myself on the back, I never learn anything. I just there's, It's just ego inflation. And that's one of the most dangerous things we got. Now, that isn't to say that I don't enjoy my moments of, quote, success, whatever that means. Um, right. uh, although that too is a complicated subject, because sometimes mm. the people you're working for will say, "Oh, that that you, you hit it out of the park," and you'll feel like, "No, you know, I missed a couple beats in there where I should have said something that was a little sharper edged and more demanding of who I was working with." Sometimes it's, people it's, like you because you you don't ask much of them.
2: Right. <laughs> You just made me think of this, Parker, like almost now, like think of burnout as this middle state. It's like we're in this um, pressure cooker. We aren't quite ready to let go and fail, but we haven't achieved what we ought. Mm -hmm. And so it's this chronic, just undoing. (laughs) And it's really, and I think I see a lot of people, I would be curious what you would offer as encouragement to people who I think, especially now are in that pressure cooker of not having the capability to fail quite yet, but also knowing that this isn't what I'm meant to do. I'm, um, I'm, I'm misaligned. Um, like what's, what would you offer to someone who might be in that place?
0: Yeah. Well, each, you know, those cases are very important and, they differ so much i think one yeah. to another that it's hard to you know write a general prescription um i'd i'd love to have a conversation with with such a person and find out the particulars that would allow me mm-hmm. to you know be in some way uh, helpful in accompanying them but i i'll say this with that with that caveat i'll 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 say this when i was in those kinds of situations Um, as an organizer, for example, and then as dean at a study center, which was a demanding job with this resident adult learner community um, where our lives were deeply intertwined uh, with a genuine communal um, round of life, daily, weekly, monthly, every year, Um, really uh, carrying some very heavy administrative loads and and also um, educational loads. What I had to do as I realized more and more about what my true calling was, which, as I said earlier, was not so much to be on the front lines of community organizing or social change, but to write about it and to teach about it and to organize about it, in ways that might help folks who, whose calling was to the front lines. I had to work double time. Um, while I was dealing with stresses as Dean of Studies and incidentally married and raising three young kids together, um, I had to burn the midnight oil and start learning how to write. Um, I'd, I'd been practicing writing for a long time because I was, I felt called to that in my early 20s. But I, now, now the question was could I write in a way that would be worthy of publication in a journal, a magazine? Uh, could I write a speech that somebody might actually want to hear because they read one of my articles and want to, wanted to learn more about where that came from? And so I, For a while, in order to make the transition from a job, an administrative job, that, like organizing, wasn't mine to do, I just, I had to do it to help keep my family afloat. And incidentally, making very little money at the time, because in this community we operated on an absolutely flat salary scale, everybody, no matter how old they were, or what credentials they had, got the same amount of money. For the work they were doing, which actually was a hugely uh, informative transitional part of that decade of experience, um, had to uh, burn the midnight oil, as I said, to write, to get to begin to get published. It was fifteen years before I got a book out of the process, but once that happened, I, I surprised myself as a first-generation college. Student, you know, oh, I can write a book. I did not know that was possible, and uh, th- and then you know, as you learn the craft, um, you feel deeply called to it. I've 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 been unable to stop writing. It's it's fifty years later, and I I started writing at five this morning, and I'll I'll do it more uh, when we finish talking. So, mm. uh, you know, I I, I think sometimes you 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 have to bite the bullet because you really have two agendas in life one is to uh, continue to do whatever work you're doing with integrity un- unless you're privileged enough or have some escape route to to lay it down because it's either toxic or it's killing you um uh, and 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 uh, to uh, carve out the time and i know how hard it is um to start uh, working on the thing you now know you most want to do.
2: Yeah, and I think something that we're, we feel compelled to um, understand and intervene are the conditions in workplaces, the conditions in cultures that exacerbate all these bur- the burnout, mental health issues, like um, things that, that don't feel in our control, but yet still deeply, greatly impact our experience, and so um, yeah. yeah, that's a piece that I think we're still wor- working through and wrestling with, and trying to figure out what that actually could look like. Yeah. And so I think some of the work you've done speaks to that as well. Well, I
0: think there's a another thread that runs through this situation, and uh, you know, grateful for that your elaboration there, Shelley. Um, and, and that thread is y- you do. You somehow have to find a way to maintain your inner life explorations and your inner life grounding. And, totally. and I, I think if you trace any pathology back, and we're talking about some social and personal pathologies here, I think. If you trace it back far enough, you find that it, it was created by small step after small step after small step. Mm-hmm. And those steps often involve erroneous assumptions about who we are and how the world works. So there's one assumption that I really like working with, with people on, and, and that is that we tend in this culture of big things and, the, and, the, and in egos, with egos that demand big things, we tend to devalue or ignore and dismiss the little stuff little stuff that you can, in fact, do on a daily basis, both in inner life and outer life. And, and you can chart it and track it and value it in, in ways that will help you through these, these impasses that, that we run into. We all do all the time. I'll give you an example. Um, in the midst of one of my profound depressions, I learned something that has been very valuable for me. I talked to a therapist who said you you tell me that you're able to do only a few tiny things. Like instead of pulling down the shade or pulling up the shade in the room where you've been hiding out because I couldn't interact with other people at, the de- at this depth of depression. You you Open the window, you open the shade at about 11 in the morning. I said, I'm going to ask you to get a piece of paper, a little notebook, and put a date up at the top today, today's date, and mark down 11 a.m., open the shade, let some light into this darkened room. He said, the only form of exercise you can get is riding your bike, and yesterday or today you rode it for five minutes. Uh, because you want to be on, you, you want to be moving so fast that if if someone sees you, greets you, and wants to talk, you can just ride on by. So he said, I want you to write down one fifteen, I rode my bike for five minutes. And he said, I want you to keep this journal of small accomplishments every day from here on out. It seemed nonsensical to me. You know, for me, a journal was a couple of hundred words of my experience and what I was wrestling with in some ways through maybe. I was incapable of that in depression. But as I kept that journal, what the therapist said came true, which is that I saw my own growth pattern. I saw my own capacity to get up a little earlier and a little earlier. I saw my own capacity to ride my bike a little longer, a little longer. Those, That journal of small achievements, which grew from maybe two or three up to maybe five or six, as I marked those daily events that that measured my very slow progress back to health, that's become very informative for me in everything I do, so that I'm no longer looking around saying, okay, what's the next book? Um, It's more like, what's my next Facebook post on this author page I run where I offer up poetry and explore it with people? That's become very soul-satisfying for me. It's a small thing, but I've been doing it for eight or ten years, and it seems to have a cumulative effect. People are drawn to it. People think about it. People explore with it. And the, the truth of the matter is that nothing big ever happened in history because at one fell swoop. Uh, everything happens because tiny step after tiny step after tiny step takes us there. And then that's the way out of a lot of the dilemmas we have today. But we'll never get there. If we have, if our consciousness only values, honors, and invests in the big hits, you know, just, it just, that's not how life works.
2: Yeah, I told you I was working on humility, and my mantra in the mornings, I try to remember, is what's the smallest thing I can do today to move me in my purpose? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Because
2: I have to resist and, and fight that pride the you know the the inflation a little bit well i could do all these big things well that also kills me
0: it does. (laughs) breaks me it absolutely does
2: so yeah so small things i think is a good um is a good wisdom everybody keep a journal
0: of small achievements yeah
2: i love that i'm gonna have to start doing that now and your facebook posts are legit parker (laughs) (laughs) we we both follow oh my goodness (laughs) Oh, uh, yeah, and they do, the they, <laughs> they do run far and wide. Like I see like the, uh, the shares and the impact and the, the dialogue that's happening around that. And I know, I know it's serving people.
0: Well, thank you. I love that audience. Uh, they're, they're a wonderful mm-hmm. community, digital community. Yeah,
2: they really are. Yeah. They're so gracious and and really great. Um, I know we're running out of time. Yeah. <laughs> I, can I ask you one more question? You can ask
0: all the questions you like. I'm enjoying talking okay. with you. Yes.
2: Yeah, so I um, we work a lot with leaders, and I know you do as well, uh, through the Center for C- Courage and Renewal, and I think probably beyond that. Um, and I found a quote, and it's about teachers, but I know we could replace the word leaders in that. Mm-hmm. And I just want to read it um, and then just have you kind of, Unpack it a little bit. You say teaching, like any truly human activity, emerges from one's inwardness, for better or worse. As I teach, I project the condition of my soul onto my students, my subject, and our way of being together. The entanglements I experience in the classroom are often no more or less than the convolutions of my inner life. Mm -hmm. I love that. Viewed from this angle, teaching holds a mirror to the soul. If I am willing to look in that mirror and not run from what I see, I have a chance to gain self-knowledge and knowing myself is as crucial to good teaching as knowing my students and my subject. Oh, that's good stuff. And we totally believe that. And I preach this to leaders. Um, I think that that is their culture is a projection and maybe a shadow Mm -hmm. projection of who they are. Um, so how, just, if you could just share a little bit more around that quote uh, with with us.
0: Yeah, that's, thank you again. Um, that's a very important notion to me. There's a couple of pieces that are important to me. One is that we're always, you know, as human beings, we're constantly involved in interactions of various sorts. And we often think of those interactions as, I'm trying to have an impact let's say in this case on you and your audience right this is this is like a one way flow that's that's a conventional way of framing it you've invited me on to talk about things about which i'm supposed to know something and i want to have an impact on you and the people who are listening to you because they trust you and they value your your work your project but the the truth of the matter is that an interview is an interview it's, it goes back and forth, and if I if I understand what that means, it is like looking at myself in a mirror. Um, I mean, on Zoom, if you don't blank your own image out, you are looking at yourself in a mirror, right? Yeah, literally, <laughs> <laughs> which is sort of a a good reminder. But um, I, I'm as I talk, I'm learning things about myself, um, and maybe those things. Are things that I need to process a bit, like later on thinking, "Well, Parker, you know, you spoke about you, you, you spoke about four inches or a foot beyond the edge of your actual knowledge when you answered that question, you know, and and own it and learn from it. And why did you do that? This is Socrates. The unexamined life is not worth living. To thy own, thine own self be true. We live what I call." big concept here, life on the Mobius strip. And I reckon that a lot of you... Oh my
2: gosh, I actually just wrote that down after this question. I wanted you to talk about that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Just add it (laughs) in. No,
2: I know. No, I love that. I actually try to make it when I'm like talking to people and I I know I mess it up all the time. So yes, tell us about
0: that. Well, it's a wonderful concept, the Mobius strip, and people can look it up if they're not familiar with it. But the prime characteristic of this Mobius strip is that it's a, it's a three-dimensional object, obviously. That's what we have in our world, in, in our current understanding of the space-time continuum. Um, but, it, but it has only one side, um, because you fold a strip of paper in a way that, where this, what appears to be the inner surface yields into the outer surface, and what appears to be the outer surface yields back into the inner surface. So if you trace your finger around the Mobius strip, you're, you, you, if you, one, one, quote, side, it only has one side, and that's the whole point here. You keep tracing that finger without lifting it. You, you go all the way around touching everything that looks inner and everything that looks outer, but it's only one side. And the message of the Mobius strip is that what's inner, what we call inner and outer, keep co-creating one another because there is only one reality and it's the reality that we co-create. The way I interpret this um, uh, when I teach is uh, to ask people to look at this Mobius strip, to do that tracing with the finger and and then simply say, we have to make thoughtful choices about what we take from within ourselves to put out into the world because whatever that is, is going to help shape the external reality. You know, if I move toward you from inside my life with fear or anger, you're going to respond in kind in one way or another. And that's going to create more fear and anger in the world. If I move toward you with hope and a sense that we're all in this together and we all want to learn... Um, then something new and better gets created in the world. Whatever you do, whatever you bring forth from within yourself out into the world, the world throws stuff back at you. You have to be very thoughtful about how you internalize that. The world is throwing back signals. You're a failure. You're a failure. You're a failure. Well, think about it. You know, reflect on it. Hold it. Are you going to give away the the store at this point and say, okay, I'll let the world define me? Or are you going to stand your ground and say, yeah, I I messed up on this, whatever. That doesn't make me a failure. It makes me someone who took a risk that didn't work out. I'm glad for my risk-taking capacity, you know. And if if I did something dumb along the way, I'll own that and learn from it. Or if the world just had obstacles that I wasn't ready for, then that's worth knowing, too. Um, and, and so forgiveness, again, I think is part of this deal. But my, my quote, spiritual life, for whatever it's worth, is, is a lot about trying to learn how to be deeply aware, first of all, and then thoughtful at each of those points of transmission. What I'm putting out into the world that co-creates our shared reality, and then how I'm processing or internalizing what the world throws back at me, because that's co-creating me. Uh, we're co-creating each other at every step along the way. That that just seems to me like reality one oh one, and and this business that we that we this intellectual and sometimes spiritual business that we engage in about well, there's a there's an external world out there and there's an internal world in here, and ne'er the twain shall meet is just silly. That's, that, that That isn't yeah. the way it works.
2: Yeah.
1: Subversive as it may be to our culture, it is reality. It, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. true. This was great. Thank you for taking some time, Parker, from your writing. And I'm glad we're glad to hear that you are uh, deeply engaged.
0: And you're writing. Oh, I am, yeah. I don't know. what I, I'd be like a fish. I
2: can't wait for the next book.
0: <laughs> no, there won't be a next book.
2: <laughs> no, that's it.
0: <laughs> that, you know, limits is another, I think, reality that we have to deal with. And
2: I, yeah, uh, For one
0: thing, um, uh, I don't have time to write another book because they take, they yeah, take me five or six years uh, to write. And at 82, you know, I, I couldn't count on delivering on a contract. But on the other hand, I've never signed a contract because I never wanted to be under those pressures. I just, I, oh, I just, I, okay. I wait till I had the book done to my satisfaction, and then asked the a publisher, Would, "Are you interested in?" Oh wow, that, that's the, awesome! So there, there are ways to dial down the pressure on ourselves as 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 yeah. well. So, but the other well, thing I about a, point pe- the other thing about age eighty-two, for whatever it's worth, and I actually think I wish I'd known this earlier. I don't have anything left to prove and if I do I don't have time to prove it. So <laughs> So if I'd known that at 42 I wouldn't have been so miserable for a while.
2: <laughs> oh, that's so good. Wow. Yeah. Wow. These truths that we get at, at you know at the time we don't we probably could have used a 40 years ago, yeah. 50 years well, ago. It's fun to, I know it's, I need it's fun em.
0: to share them with other people. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Well, well, I'm sure this wisdom, these insights will have an impact oh my for our audience.
2: Yeah, so much. I'm not going to cry again. I'm just going to say <laughs> how much gratitude I have for you. I have for uh, your legacy that it's impacting people here in Chattanooga, Tennessee, that hear me talk over and over again about your Parker Palmer, Parker Palmer's work is <laughs> like, so you're, you're, um. Far and wide is your impact in our community, and I'm just really grateful that you have the time and were willing to
0: spend it with us today. Well, so thank, thank you, you both, uh, Shelley and Chad. I'm so grateful to have had this chance to meet you and have a good conversation. I look forward to another opportunity down the road.
2: We would love that, for sure. Thank, thank you. you.
1: And here is the Big Self Takeaway. Parker Palmer tells us that our deepest calling is to grow into our own authentic selfhood, whether or not it conforms to some image of who we ought to be. And as we do so, we not only find the joy that every human seeks, we also find our path of authentic service in the world. This theme runs through everything in his life and work, including our conversation today. We learn that failure should be seen as experiments and that we do tend to learn more from them than from our successes, at least if we are willing to sit with them and listen. Not only listen, but he adds, to discern deeply. The inner and outer life are like a Mobius strip, he tells us. The two are totally integrated completely a part of the whole of our life, and that, frankly, it is silly for us to try to divide them. Living the kind of life that can view the brokenness in the outer world should not bring us to despair. He constantly reminds us, through his life and work, that there is a hidden wholeness in the mystery of our world and our existence. It is from tapping into this source That we can listen, we can heal, we can give, and we can receive. And through these acts, we can be made whole.